welcome to episode 11 of the Criterion Chat. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Tonight's episode focuses on director Carol Reed's existential action thriller, Odd Man Out, released in 1947. The film is based on the novel by F.L. Green, who also co-wrote the screenplay. In an unnamed city in Northern Ireland, recent prison escapee Johnny and his unnamed organization plot a bank robbery. When the heist goes horribly wrong, Johnny is injured, only to kill his assailant in defense. With his gang unable to rescue their wounded comrade, Johnny is left behind to fend for himself. So begins an odyssey of survival and police evasion through the rain-drenched and later snow-covered streets of not Belfast. James Mason stars along with the cast of stage theater regulars, bringing the IRA conflict to the screen for the first time in any meaningful fashion. His muse is played by Kathleen Ryan in an understated, tortured performance, telegraphing the ending from her first appearance on screen. Noir sensibilities abound, lensed by cinematographer Robert Krasker. Despite its somewhat incendiary subject matter, Reed seems more interested in the universal themes of justice, misplaced love, the horrors of unintended and intended violence, and the price of sin. Recently released by Criterion on DVD and Blu-ray, this important British classic is best enjoyed with libations on a cold, dreary night. So uh, that was not an alcohol joke, just because this film is set in Ireland, so I just want to make that clear. Um, so Nate, I, I, we have to point out as an Irish Catholic, um, I should probably just let you take over here. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm too busy planting a car bomb right now. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought you were, you were sounding busy over there. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I, just first impressions, I'll just throw it to you um, as we start here. I uh, I came to this film recently. Uh, I I picked it up on Blu-ray actually as a blind buy because of my admiration for other work by Carol Reed, and uh, so I, I'm not overly familiar with it. I ha- I do like it. I'm not quite certain that I would ascribe to it the the accolades that are found in certain corners. I don't know that I would put this on the level of a masterpiece like others have said. But it is very much an exhilarating film. It's richly stylish. Uh, I think it, as you said, is one of the first films to take seriously the conflict in Northern Ireland. It does not name the city as Belfast, but it certainly is Belfast. Uh, It doesn't say the IRA. It calls it the organization, but it's the IRA. Um, And I think, I guess, perhaps it would be asking too much considering when it was made, coming out in 1947, uh, to have made it so ex- explicitly political, but it does strike me as that would have been a little bit more politics would have been beneficial to the film, at least uh, from my perspective. But nonetheless, it is still a, a very solid uh, and interesting portrayal of what happens to a city when basically a civil war emerges within it, because that's what I really think this film's about. It's about the civil war in, in Belfast, in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's probably a good place to start is just, you know, how this film kind of treats the political climate that it's depicting. I mean, so from the opening crawl, you know, I'll just read the the opening crawl here. Um, the story is told against the background of political unrest in the city of Northern, Northern Ireland. 
It is not concerned with the struggle between the law and an illegal organization, but only with the conflict in the hearts of the people when they become unexpectedly involved. So right away, the film is kind of trying to distance itself from the whole conflict, which Mm -hmm. uh, almost feels like studio intervention in a way, but I I don't think that's the case. I think Carol Reed made a conscious decision to kind of throw the labels away and to hopefully make this more of a universal story. But I I guess that's my first question to kind of throw, throw at you, Nate, is, you know, is this evasion on, on the part of Carol Reed or is this, um, you know, fear of backlash, uh, because, okay, this is the first film to really take a look at this conflict or do you think it's a, a legitimate desire to, to make the story more universal? I think it's a legitimate move on Reed's part to make the story more universal. The novel it's based on by green FL green is very much a polemic and very strongly anti-IRA. So he had to have known as he picked up the story what he was getting into, and the studio would have known. So I don't think that having it be overtly anti-IRA, having it be political, would have been something that would have shied them away from it. Otherwise, I don't think they'd have done this material in the first place. So the decision to downplay that and to humanize the uh, characters, uh, Jimmy uh, McQueen is the main character played by James Mason, is obviously a deliberate one because they add certain scenes into it that aren't in the original novel, uh, particularly that opening scene as you see them planning the bank robbery or the mill robbery, actually. Uh, they are um, uh, showing this character of Jimmy having a certain reticence of violence, uh, having been escaped from prison, that isn't found in the novel. So I think it's his intention to try to make it, it could be any city, it could be any person, it could be any organization, uh, I don't think it was uh, studio interference. I don't think it was uh, a timidness on the part of the filmmakers, but rather a conscious de- a decision. I just wonder to what extent is it, while maybe allowing it to be sort of abstracted, nonetheless making it also a little less uh, of a great documentation of a certain era in history, uh, because you have this time right after World War II in which... Northern Ireland, there's a, the, the Republicans there were serious about wanting to actually support the Nazis because it would have hurt the English and got them out of Northern Ireland. And uh, I think that would have been an interesting thing to play up. But this does work as a, certainly as an exploration of, the, of humanity uh, and not so much maybe an exploration of the conflict in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I, I think the wounds were probably a little too raw at that point. I mean, the, the film was in production in 1946, which of course uh, was directly after the war ended. And yeah, I, I can see yeah, probably just from a business standpoint, uh, you know, I, I think you're right. I mean, Carol Reed, I think made a conscious decision to, to make this more universal out of a legitimate desire to do so. But I, I'm sure the studio and the producers were, also eager to depoliticize the film and, and we're probably very comfortable with that decision. Uh, so this is kind of an easing into uh, the process of examining this conflict in Northern, Northern Ireland. So uh, that's, it's an interesting um, aspect to this film because it does feel like evasion, but at the same time, I mean, uh, there's a clear reason for it. Right. And, and I think it's probably a good choice at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I wonder what I would think of this film if I hadn't seen. This is a, maybe getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but uh, it remi- it's similar to the film Seventy One, which came out a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which also is set in Belfast. Uh, for anybody who hasn't seen this, it's a great film. Uh, I highly recommend it. It came out in twenty fifteen, and I thought it was the best film of that year. And that is similar in the sense that it's uh, a, a British soldier that's stuck in Belfast and trying to survive a night. Whereas in this, our character is a Northern Irish uh, Republican who is trying to survive the night after being injured. Uh, but the, so there's a, a superficial similarity in that level. But what I liked about that particular film of '71 is that it is very human, and it could easily speak to say what was happening what's happening right now in the middle east in syria or in iraq just a decade ago and yet it also is very much aware of the of the politics of the time it's not afraid to talk about catholics and protestants loyalists and nationalists and so i think it's just a, an interesting comparison because that film blended the politics and the human i think much more effectively than odd man out does while odd man out is certainly a great triumph in terms of its artistic style, uh, I wonder if it's also just a, not quite, maybe cinema wasn't even ready. I mean, it's not even the fault of the film. Maybe cinema wasn't quite ready to have this blending of suspense and politics in that way. That's probably right. Uh, I think, you know, for a film coming out of the late 40s, there are aspects of this film that are definitely ahead of its time. Uh, when you when you consider its context but it's yeah i think it's hard to put the expectation on this film to really have a fully fleshed out examination of the whole political climate and and again it's carol reed's i think interests kind of are beyond that and there are more existential or more universal uh so kind of maybe shifting to to some of those themes that are in the film uh so looking at Johnny's character, he's obviously the protagonist here. And this is kind of Carol Reed's specialty, I, I think, the the anti-hero or kind of the individual that's sort of outside mainstream society that's that's in a, a very extreme situation. And we see that definitely in, in the other films in this period. So, I mean, what do you think Carol Reed is really saying about Johnny's character? I mean, he... Uh, he's definitely supposed to be a bad guy, yet he is the protagonist and we're supposed to sympathize with the situation. Uh, so what is Reed getting at here thematically? My consideration is that it's not so much about Johnny as it is about the people around him. Uh, because you're right, he is certainly a bad guy. He's, he's a criminal. He is a murderer uh, before the story is done. And yet... He's also sympathetic in a certain sense, so it's a complicated man. But I think it's more about you know, most of the movie, he's not really doing anything. He's just basically trying to survive and yeah. bumbling around, hallucinating, uh, and not really even quite certain what's happening to him. Uh, so it's really how people react to him. You have this constant array of all these other people not sure what to do with him. He goes into the saloon, and people are, okay, let's just get him out of here, because if we turn him into the police, that's going to rile this one faction up. If we don't turn him into the police, that'll rile another faction up. And so let's just pass him on to somebody else so he isn't ours, right? And it's the same thing with the cab driver. It's the same thing with the two nice English women who take him in. They're just uh, Let's just get him, get him out of here, right? Once everybody knows who he is, they want him gone. 
And so I think his take is more about the people around them, that once this conflict emerges, you are put in a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of predicament. And then you're just trying to figure out a way to survive uh, without ruffling any feathers. So I think that was the, the main takeaway thematically for me, that this city is just kind of on eggshells. It's a good observation. I, I mean, the film ultimately is a series of vignettes, right? I mean, it's Johnny kind of clawing through the streets and, and the different people he encounters along the way. And these are all pretty colorful characters in their own right. So kind of going back to some of Carol Reed's tendencies, he's he has a big focus on what most people would consider secondary characters, but I think I think he doesn't really see one character necessarily as a, a protagonist. I mean, Johnny, granted, is the main character, but he's kind of the mechanism uh, for proceeding through the story. And like you said, he doesn't have a whole lot to do other than look uh, look wounded and kind of sickly as he staggers through the streets. So he he is the uh, the catalyst for kind of revealing all these other individuals in the city, right? And each of their motivations and each of their, uh, desires or, or, um, or, or wishes for, uh, for either helping or, or harming Johnny. So you kind of have, uh, yeah, the cab driver who, yeah, I'm going to start calling you gin Jimmy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a name. Uh, <laughs> Especially considering I don't drink gin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he's right out there with it. So uh, you, you got to hand the honesty to him, I guess. But yeah, you've got the cab driver. You've got uh, the the priest, of course. You've got the insane portrait painter who kind of comes out of nowhere. And he his kind of fixation with art becomes this means to to look at the more existential parts of the story so there's a real shift that happens i I think between each of these scenes uh not only because of the characters of course but just thematically so the the scene with the two women kind of becomes almost a, a touchstone to the war right and they're talking about their their training uh presumably during the war for uh for medical purposes and then and then we get more and more surreal as he gets more and more, you know, close to death, ultimately culminating in his encounter with the, the portrait painter, uh, before he, he staggers out in the snow one last time. So there is kind of this, uh, snowball effect going on, uh, as we, as we kind of propel through the story. But I, I do think that's kind of a weakness to the story in a way, because I would agree. Yeah. Ulti- Ultimately, it is just a series of vignettes, right? And and granted, I do think there's a progression to it, and I do think there's a conscious effort to kind of um, show this degeneration that that culminates in the, some of the surrealistic segments toward the end of the film. And even the weather is is a character here too, right? So it starts out sunny in the beginning of the film and then starts raining. And then by the end of the film, obviously it's snowing. So, uh, I do think there's, there's an effort to kind of show that progression, but ultimately you could change the order of any of these little encounters and probably not affect the story in, in too, too great of a fashion. So that it is a weakness of the film. 
and and I think robs some of the power. Yeah, I completely agree with you on this point. I think that it's not a particularly well integrated film. Lots of great elements, and I think almost each and every single scene is well done. Uh, I will say I think some of the acting is a little hit or miss, uh, but I think that's also just because the characters, I don't, I mean, you're right that Reed has tended to have a nice ensemble approach to his work, and he does like ancillary characters, but this one, none of them really strike me as being all that particularly remember, uh, memorable, except for, uh, uh, if not for the right reasons, the artist, Lukey. Uh, yeah, <laughs> played play by Robert Newton. I, I mean, it's just it's such a hammy performance, and I'm willing to give it a little bit of the fact that yes, artists can be very theatrical and over the top, and I, I think that was what he was trying to go for there. But it just seems so out of place with everything else happening in the film that I just can't quite get into that particular character. Uh, so I think that a lot of it is just not as particularly as well integrated as some of his later work would be. I look at this as a great, it's a great first effort. It's, it's the rookie who's coming out uh, and has a, you know, a, a great start, but it's not a perfect season, you know, but lots of promise. This isn't Reed's first film by any means, but it's his first film of this type in which he gets into film noir. He gets into this examination of the outcast. So it's his first in what would become sort of his, if he has, if you would, if you could say he has a particular motif, this is the start of it right here. And I think that it's not a particularly well integrated story, but still perfectly well worth watching. And some wonderful, wonderful details in terms of the visuals and the editing, but not necessarily the greatest of character development or of story writing. I agree. I, I think the supporting characters are definitely very theatrical in their performances, and and these were theater actors. So, with the exception of Kathleen shows. Ryan, I mean, she was yeah, the one well, person that was under underplayed. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, she, I think, understood acting for the uh, for cinema much more than the other supporting characters, and whether or not that's a, a fault of the director. Uh, to to guide them properly, I guess it's a question to throw out there. But yeah, the the crazed artist, uh, <laughs> Luki, he just comes out of nowhere. That character, I <laughs> just I mean, this is the first time I've seen the film, and and just the introduction of Shell to begin with, kind of started to push us toward that over the top theatrical style, especially when he's talking about his bird and. And it gets very metaphorical. It's like, okay, we know you're talking about Johnny. It's like, all right. I don't even quite understand why he's doing that either. It sounds neat, but there's nobody that's eavesdropping on the conversation. So he doesn't have to talk about the bird as a proxy to talking about Johnny. So it just, it's one of those things that, well, it kind of is interesting, but it doesn't make sense in the world of the story itself. Yeah, and he does it again later in the bar when it makes more sense there, right? Right. Uh, but not in private with, with the priest. So. Uh, the fact that they use that device twice, I, I thought was a little uh, awkward too, but he was kind of the first indication of, okay, we're kind of getting over the top. And then Lukey comes into the picture and, and the two of them have a bizarre relationship. I don't quite know what's, what's going on there. I suppose it's kind of a, uh, a bully and victim sort of thing. Uh, but it's, yeah, it, it gets more surreal. And I suppose that kind of fits because at that point, Johnny's pretty close to death and and again we get pushed into those 
more dreamlike sequences. Uh, but it, it does hurt the film, unfortunately. No, it's an interesting because the start of it is very gritty and yeah. tip, uh, typical sort of post-war look at reality. And I really love that stuff. The other stuff where it gets a little more surrealistic, you have Johnny's hallucinations, particularly when he's looking at the the suds of the spilt beer. Uh, you have the different figures that he's seen talking to him in the suds and that he starts quoting from first corinthians it was just that's this sort of wait what movie am i watching again yeah <laughs> and 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 the drool too right uh, no yes. less. it's just it's sort of you know okay there's there's just two different movies going on here both of them interesting but not well integrated and um again i think it's, it's just that perhaps reed and company hadn't quite figured out how to make the right pivots on these particular moments uh, there's certainly a lot of good here, but I think there's also some flaws. Well, we kind of touched on it previously, but we can talk a bit more about the style of filming. Definitely, it's it's a film noir in in terms of its visuals. Um, not not your kind of typical noir structure, however. I mean, Kathleen Ryan's characters. Yeah, I, I no don't think to tell. exactly. You can't really characterize her as that, uh, despite what happens at the end, but she's, she's an interesting character though, because, uh, like, like I said, in the opening, she really telegraphs the tragedy of the story just from the get go. I mean, there's just this kind of depression and darkness about her. She, she knows that she's doomed never really to have a future with, with the man that she loves. And, and that carries through very well throughout the film. So I, I mean, if I had to pick the strongest performance in the film, I'd probably go with her, uh, even though she seems so minimalist uh, next to the other performances in in the picture. Uh, But it is the most mature performance, I would say. Well, I think it's what that gets the tone of the film. The the film is marked by a melancholy, uh, whether it's in the scoring, uh, which I thought was also very nicely done, or even the visuals, uh, the, the way the snow falls at the end over everything. It's just this, layering of death that's coming on as the snow falls so i think her hers is the one that most perfectly captures what's really going on and uh you to get into the ending i think it was a bold choice to have her do i guess what you'd call a suicide by cop and mm-hmm. uh very nicely done uh true to what she was gonna do she was loved him enough that she wanted to see him free whatever that meant and that's i guess where the film tries to take it is this idea of of Death is liberation for Johnny. And um, I guess it, it's to me, it's one of those things where you go, you know, it, it really has great aesthetics. And the aesthetics do highlight the themes, particularly the darkness of the images. And uh, the cinematography by Krasker is expert. It's very nicely yeah, done. It's, it's beautiful. And, you know, it's just a gorgeous feast for the eyes. And maybe makes it better than it should be. <laughs> this is one of those things where sometimes you have a, a performance that elevates material, uh, but this is where I think the cinematography elevates the material because if you didn't have this beautiful, rich uh, compositions and particularly the way it's framed, just the the claustrophobic nature of the framing, how much movement is in there and how these different objects in the scenes uh, are constantly engulfing the characters. 
I don't know that it would be as effective of a story, you know. So the cinematography really works in this movie uh, to to make it what it is. Some really neat tracking shots in the film too. I mean, some of the the street scenes, uh, some of the tracking there, I thought was uh, ahead of its time as well. And and one scene that really stands out to me too is when the uh, the two other members of the gang kind of. Uh, drop in on that older lady and drink all of her liquor and when they they leave and get caught or get shot i should say by the police just that that dolly in on the camera or with the camera on the old woman at the door really uh, came across as a very modern stylistic choice i was surprised to see that in this film so uh definitely some expert camera work and and very um expressionistic in that regard but the yeah the snow again weather is is a big character in this film uh reminded me of you know kurosawa's use of of weather elements to really uh amp up the drama but details too like the like shells where where shell lives uh that little shaft of light with the snow falling through the the hole in the roof as he's going up the stairs i mean details like that were were pretty stunning so uh, and obviously, Krasker would work with Carol Reed again later on. So this, I, I think you're right to say this is an important film in terms of kind of showing the groundwork for uh, for Carol Reed's subsequent films, uh, not only stylistically, but just in terms of how he how he likes to, to frame and 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 feature secondary characters and, and tell the story. So uh, it's important in that regard. But yeah, it. it there are definitely some weaknesses here, uh, to be sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the weaknesses are really coming from the script. And perhaps yeah. it's because you're trying to take a novel, which I'll, I'll admit I've not read the novel, but from all that I've been able to discover about the novel, it seems like the novel was your typical cheap pot boiler kind of story and not particularly subtle, not one that really lends itself to this kind of story that Reed is trying to tell because I think he's trying to find a very nuanced vision of humanity and of modern conflict and perhaps uh, even a little bit of post-war reflection for England. But the the novel, the source material doesn't necessarily provide for it and maybe there just was trying to put too much onto it considering the limits of what he had created, what he had to start with. Uh, they they try admirably. I mean, it does avoid polemics, and it doesn't stop, fall into cheap moralizing. And the IRA is bad, and the people who are involved in the IRA is bad. And loyalty to the United Kingdom is good. It doesn't have that sort of uh, narrative th- a thrust to it. But it also just seems like there is a little bit of a hampered narrative, probably stemming from its source material. Yeah, I think Carol Reed is interested in in saying that you know everyone has good and evil within them, right? And like you said, there really isn't a black and white outlook on the world, which is it's neat to see in a film uh, from this period. And, and part of that could be that post war environment where okay, we can kind of get away maybe from some of the propaganda and, and start to look at more um, and look at larger themes, uh, but. I think, especially toward the end, I, I think we're meant to, again, see Johnny as kind of this catalyst for for looking at humanity in a, in a larger sense. So when he gets up and starts reciting uh, verses from the Bible, 
you know, what, why, why was that verse chosen? I guess it is a, a question to throw out there. You know, it's talking about leaving, um, leaving childish things behind, uh, talking about charity, of course, uh, is that a realization that Johnny has come to? Is this just a, another hallucination? Is, is Carol Reed talking to the audience? Well, what's your interpretation of that scene? It did strike me as a little bit of an odd verse because it's not one that I would normally think of in this yeah. type of a story. I, I assume the the hit the the key idea is that when I was a child, I used to think like a child, and then I left childish things behind. So I yeah. assume that is at the heart of it because Johnny starts out with this idea of, well, I'd love to be able to solve this without political violence and some sort of a recourse in the parliament, but not expecting that, therefore I have to work with the hand I'm dealt. And so this this dying man looking at what he has left and say, say I, I want to leave behind this kind of life because this is childish, right? To, to try to solve ourselves, our, our, our differences, our, our major conflicts through the recourse to violence is a childish response. A more adult response is discourse. So I think that is at the heart of the theme that uh, Reed wants to get. If he has a political interest, I think that's his political interest. I can't say that he develops it particularly strongly, perhaps because he wanted to avoid being a political filmmaker. But that's where I think maybe embracing the politics of this story would have served the film better than trying to play this more neutral approach. Yeah, I think the novel, uh, I think you said this earlier, really looked down on the IRA, whereas the film is much more ambivalent towards them. Uh, and uh, yeah, I wonder if, if Carol Reed kind of pushed for that uh, because the the original author is is a co-writer on the screenplay. So I wonder where that shift actually took place. Um, but yeah, I mean, back to back to Johnny as well. It's you know, ultimately he's making decisions that are increasing the suffering of not only himself but people around him, right? And and maybe that moment of of uh, if you want to call it clarity, where we see the the more surrealistic uh, hallucinations. Maybe he's uh, realizing the error of his ways there, but. Um, yeah, back to the style again, too. I mean, German expressionism is huge in this film, too, I would say. I mean, not only because of the noir elements, but those uh, hallucination sequences are, are are definitely reminiscent of that. But some sophisticated optical effects in this film, too. I, I was impressed with some of those. Yeah, particularly the dream sequence he has when he's held up at the artist's studio. Yeah. Uh, very, very good optical work uh, on that particular scene. Uh, I, I actually was more impressed probably th- with the editing. I, I thought the editing was really quite exhilarating in this, particularly going back to late 1940s cinema. Uh, the heist scene in particular, I can only think of what that must have been like to an audience in the 40s, how chaotic must have come across with these cameras of the car, uh, these angles of the car driving, and it's it's all canted shots. You have very quick editing at different points in time there. Uh, very uh, modern sensibilities, actually, in that particular scene. Uh, and I think the other scenes that happen uh, throughout the film uh, have uh, this, this wonderful use of editing, the way he cuts the close-ups, uh, particularly with the way he shows people's responses to Johnny. Uh, I think the, the realizations the characters have when they get Johnny are all nicely edited 
into the film, uh, whether it's going to be the the women as they see his shot, his, his gunshot wound, uh, or if it's going to be the cab driver as he realizes he's got Johnny in his back seat. Just some nice use of close-ups in this particular film uh, to draw out character reactions. Yeah, and just the townspeople, too. Uh, and, and we see that device in, in some of Carol Reed's later work, too. But, uh, yeah, definitely a, a big focus on, on those secondary characters, for sure. I, I think you mentioned the score earlier. I mean, uh, William Alwyn did the music, and it's a very memorable theme. I mean, granted, it's kind of the only theme in the film, but it's pretty powerful. And by the end of the film... Uh, it kind of keeps amping up and amping up until we get that uh, the big climax uh, on the um, on the docks. But uh, great theme and uh, definitely enhances the film. And not only just that it's uh, a great theme, but it was actually written before the film was shot. Oh, really? I didn't know which that. Which is an unusual at, at technique, but then they would play it on the set. Uh, so that the actors could map their motions to the theme, which works beautifully, particularly in that final scene with the way Mason is working as Johnny, the way he moves very much works very perfectly with that music uh, to highlight uh, the, the emotion of the music. So um, not a common technique to, to score a film before it's actually shot, uh, but that's what they did on this one. And it, it works very nicely. So uh, anything else that stood out to you uh, watching the film, Nate? Well, I would say this. I think what I, I appreciated about it, perhaps most of all, is the fact that it does have a nice meditation on death. And death is a factor, uh, it's a fact of life, and it's something that entertainment doesn't look at much. This is a movie that is an entertainment. It, it's designed as being exciting and as being thoughtful at the same time but it's meant to really entertaining an audience and that's why i think it was a big hit when it came out was because it was done as as a, as a solid bit of uh, saturday night uh, blockbuster kind of motion picture and yet it takes death seriously and i really appreciated that aspect of it and perhaps that's a, a, another way to look at this film is to look at it as an odyssey for jimmy towards death and people's reaction to him is a reaction to the reality of death Nobody really quite wants to admit death or confront mortality. And so let's get him out of here. And so I wonder if that is another read on this film that would be perhaps lending itself to a more, um, or at least lend me towards a more th positive uh, interpretation of it. I've seen it twice now. The first time I saw it purely as, as a political film that didn't have any teeth to it, this time... I saw that death element, that meditation on death element that I hadn't seen the first time. So when I watch it a third time, I don't know when that'll be, but when I do, uh, I will look at that and see if maybe that gives me a different insight and perhaps there's a, a more depth here that I necessarily have seen just looking at the first couple passes. Yeah, I really think the film gets into those more existential themes again uh, when we meet the artist. I mean, that's kind of almost this chamber of existentialism <laughs> when he's surrounded by all these surrealist kind of paintings. And, and then we have that, um, former, I don't know if he's a former medical student, uh, uh, Tober that comes into the picture as well and actually, uh, binds his wounds. And 
he, he's very much the the pragmatist philosophically uh, and just throws out some excellent uh, uh, lines about the fact that we're all dying and, and death is inevitable. And so it starts to kind of hit you over the head that, okay, this is something that, that the director's interested in for sure. Um, but the film also, I think, looks at, at faith uh, maybe in not a very deep manner, but that's definitely an element. And, and there's some interesting conversations kind of by the fireside there where, where they're talking about faith and, and shell is really interested in, in getting money, right. To pay his rent. And he wants to exploit Johnny's situation for his own benefit and, and who can blame him. Cause he's obviously in dire straits and he, he wants to take every opportunity he can to, to try to improve his circumstances. Um, and he gets beaten up for wanting to, uh, you could say betray someone, but, uh, in his mind, maybe he's just trying to deliver him to justice, but ultimately he's looking for money. Uh, and I think it's an interesting conversation that he has with the priest that later kind of comes to a head with Tober, with the, the medical student or the former medical student, uh, talking about faith and, and the value of faith and, even though it's interesting that that Tober's character again bec- comes across as the pragmatist, as the scientist, yet he seems to have a greater insight into maybe more metaphysical or religious themes uh, than than you would give him credit for on the surface. Trying to convince Shell that hey, faith may have some value, uh, even if money um, is in short supply. So th- there's some interesting things going on. I think even beyond. Uh, an examination of, of death, but I, I do think that's that's definitely a, a theme in the film. It becomes much more explicit. The the uh, shall we say existential or thematic elements become much more explicit towards the second half. The mm-hmm. groundwork is there, I think, in the first half, particularly because they insert that original that first opening scene where Johnny's planning and he talks about just the the nature of violence, and it adds with Kathleen Ryan's performance a certain melancholy and perhaps a fatalism uh, because of how she's approaching it. And even especially, I, I found the, the scene she has with the grandmother uh, to be a rather touching scene in which the grandmother recounts her own past love of a, of a rebel like Johnny and that she chose not to go with him because yeah. she wanted to live a life. And it touches on what was an Irish woman at that time confronted with. Uh, the men were rebels. The men were doomed to a life of crime or a life that could be ending in violence. And so what do they do with that being the, the population they can fall in love with? So I thought that was a, a, a very nicely observed scene. And so I do think the, the, the groundwork for the meditation on death is there. And even just the way uh, you look at Johnny when he first holds up, he holds up in that abandoned uh, bomb shelter, right? That's yeah. his first hiding spot. He's in a bomb shelter uh, that would have been used during the war. And now he's just sitting there empty and is uncovered. Uh, I can't remember if it's first by a the couple or by the girl. There's a little girl and then the couple. I can't remember which one was first, which one was second. I think the girl was first. So the, you know, the girl comes first. Uh, so it's this man who's basically now started the path that will end in his death and this young little girl looking at him, right? I think it's an interesting <laughs> juxtaposition of the two, uh, the man on his way out and the young girl coming into her prime. And then you have this other, the young couple that's looking to get 
uh, I, I, let's just say a romantic night, although I don't know if making out <laughs> in a uh, bomb shelter is exactly romantic. But no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to others to decide if they consider that a, a good first date. Um, but, you know, it's just an interesting thing that the first encounters he has are with young people where death is the most remote from them, right? They yeah. don't think of death, and here they're all of a sudden confronted with it, and their response is to just sort of walk away. They don't really plan to say or do anything. They just kind of, let's just walk away from this. And it's as he gets progressively further along and meets people who are older, have more life experience, more at stake in the world, that they start to contemplate, what do I do with this man? Do I look for money like Shell's trying to do? Do I, like Kathleen, try to save him? Uh, and I actually think that's another thematic point that could be interesting, too. Uh, Father Tom wants to save his soul. Kathleen wants to save his life. And I wish they developed that more because that's an interesting debate. What is it to love Johnny? What is it to love a man who has committed murder? For Kathleen, it means, well, I want him to be free. I don't want him to go to jail. I want to get him on the boat, get him out of here. Uh, for Father Tom, it's who had the story. I, we didn't talk about this, but had trained him uh, or taught him when he was in school uh, as a young boy. Father Tom, it's no. I want him to to meet justice. I, I want him to be held to account, but I also want to get him absolution at the at the same time. Uh, so that he wants to hear his confession. I mean, that's his main concern, right? I mean, it's it's so that to me is the more interesting dynamic. Uh, what does it mean to love a man in this particular situation? Yeah, I mean, Kathleen Ryan's character is ultimately selfish. I mean, she she wants him for herself, and and she's living in this fantasy that they'll be able to escape and have a life together despite his his sins. And she's perfectly willing to overlook them if it means they can be happy together. And granted, she's young and, and idealistic in some ways, but, you know, I, idealistic in terms of of wanting true love and you don't really get the sense that she's loyal to this organization in any way. She's only loyal to Johnny. And that that is an interesting dichotomy between the two of them that they're both trying to help, uh, help him, but for obviously very different reasons. And neither one really succeeds. That's, that's the other thing that, I mean, Father Tom never gets to meet him because he doesn't make it to the church. And then Kathleen wants to get him to the boat, but can't get him to the boat, right? And so she winds up drawing the police's fire to kill them both. Yeah, I think th- this film was a tragedy from the get-go. I mean, I I don't feel like anything that happened in this film was a surprise, which is fine. I mean, I, I don't feel like every film has to have uh, a twist or, or a surprise to it, but... In a way, if he if Johnny's character didn't die, I, I think the film would not have worked at all. So you kind of know from the get go this man is doomed, right? And it's a matter of seeing how he meets his death. And ultimately, the way he meets his death is well, it, it's kind of I mean, you could say cowardly maybe is too strong of a word, but I, I don't get the sense that he really comes to terms with what he has done. I mean, he is clearly disillusioned with the organization. And, and again, that, that opening scene when he's meeting with, with his fellow uh, members, 
he he is tired of violence and he wants a solution that doesn't involve violence so we get the sense of his disillusionment early on but at the same time uh his motivations are kind of muddled throughout the film uh, mostly because he's so injured that he seems to be delirious most of the time so i don't think we really get that moral catharsis that maybe we're looking for as an audience member and, and i don't feel like he has to have this moment of perfect clarity where he is absolving or he becomes absolved or, or is fully repentant but it would have been nice if if he had uh some level of epiphany at the end of the film that that may have um elevated the story in, in a meaningful way well i do think he has some attempt to to regret or to to he because he keeps asking did I kill that man, right? He wants to know this. And yeah. he does find out when he is with the two English women take him in and her husband comes in and then he overhears them arguing about him, right, as they had to enter the kitchen. He hears that he has killed the man and that's when he makes the decision to leave. Um, he had actually kind of wanted to stay there and recuperate. And so I wonder to what extent is he saying, you know what, now that I know I've killed this man, uh, even though it sort of is played in a self-defense way in the film, uh, he he does sort of make a decision at that point. I, consciously, I'm going to leave now. Right? I, I, he makes a determination that he goes back out into into the dark night to uh, presumably to die. So I do wonder if that was his intention. Right? I I've, I've now chosen to walk away from these things and just kind of realizing I have become a lost man because of this murder, but. There isn't a specific act of seeking to turn himself in or anything like that uh, for him to uh, to have the, the typical uh, of the era of the period typical moral lesson that would have been there, which I think also highlights the fact that this was not be robbing itself of the naming Belfast or IRA or something like that as of studio interference because the ending is definitely not showing any signs of studio interference, right? If the studio is going to interfere, I think it would have interfered very heavily in the ending and had it be that he was brought to justice or something happened, you know, other than the two of them just being killed. So that strikes me as being um, good, good proof that this was intended as, as it was made. It was, that was intended by the artists themselves. Well, I think the original ending was actually, um, more of a murder-suicide. I think that's the orig- original ending of the book where Kathleen Ryan's character shoots Johnny and then shoots herself, so kind of a uh, even a more tragic take on the ending. But it sounded like the American censors would not have been pleased with suicide on screen, so the ending was changed to what we see in the film, which I, I think actually works better. Um, I think in one of the supplements... Uh, it's pointed out that you know the Catholic attitude towards suicide uh, would have really prevented her character from from proceeding with that original ending. So uh, there were some changes there, some concerns about censorship, but yeah, I, I don't think it was the result of studio interference. You know, I mean, I think it's well, even the the way the gun is shown; she shoots towards the police but you don't really see her aim. So it's kind of a, a, a futile effort, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. one of those things where you, you definitely get the sense that she shot at them, never really intending to kill a single cop, but rather just to draw their, give them excuse to kill them. 
Well, we can talk about uh, Criterion's release here briefly. So it's actually a fairly uh, recent release from Criterion. Yeah, so, uh, a couple years ago, I think. Yeah, uh, beautiful cover for sure. And uh, some of the features are are definitely worthwhile. So there's an interview with uh, British cinema scholar John Hill, who wrote a book on cinema in Northern Ireland. And he gives the interview in the the bar in Belfast. I, it's, the name of it's escaping me. Uh, but they actually rebuilt that bar on set uh, for, for Odd Men Out. So it seems like people go to this bar thinking they're at the same location they shot Odd Men Out, but they actually uh, just rebuilt this bar as a set, so they didn't shoot anything there. Um, and then there's a, a short documentary called Post-War Poetry, which is a series of interviews, including Tony Raines, that uh, examines the film. There's an interview on the score, uh, which I haven't watched that. Um, and there's a 1972 documentary with James Mason visiting his hometown, which sounds very warm and charming. <laughs> uh, and then a radio adaptation. So I, I watched this on Filmstruck, so I don't have the actual Blu-ray, but um, sounds like you do, Nate. Yeah, I picked up the Blu-ray, and it looks gorgeous. Uh, so I mean, definitely, if you're if you're looking for just high quality visual images, this is a great disc because it, it looks gorgeous. The, the source material is great; it's presented very well. And I do I agree. the The features are very solid. Uh, the uh, discussions on the film itself, I thought, were were good. They weren't terribly in depth. They're about twenty minute interviews, but there's they're good. There's interesting stuff on it, and you know the the point about it being shot on studio, we didn't talk about that, but I think is actually very impressive because it really does, as you're watching this, it does feel like it was shot in a city and shot out on the streets. They did do some location shooting, but a lot of it is shot in the film, in this film studio, and it does not feel like it at all. It does not feel like a studio no. work. So yeah. that's that's a credit to the filmmakers. Uh, the, the set design as well as the cinematography really do convey a very real urban experience uh and yeah the bar i would have just assumed it's a local bar that they went into and, and shot it so yeah i mean if you look at the level of detail in that bar set it's incredible i mean just the the woodworking uh it's amazing that they replicated that that set so precisely or that right. that original bar that's in belfast right it's not just an obvious oh they're they went to some random pre-existing set and redressed it a little bit for this movie mm-hmm. so uh, the, the I don't did you uh, watch the documentary of, uh, on James Mason's hometown? I, I don't think that's on Filmstruck. I might be mistaken, but okay. the other the other features are. So I did watch the interview with John Hill and Post War Poetry, and I do think the interview on the score is available on Filmstruck too. Oh. But uh, I didn't get a chance to watch that. But I, I, I don't think the the documentary is on there about his hometown. Yeah. It's an interesting documentary. It, it, it's really not at all relevant to the film. It doesn't reference okay. the film at all. But uh, it is just kind of charming to see this northern England town, uh, it, it, James Mason talking about it and uh, reminiscing about his experiences growing up and just discussing the, the, the nature of a, of a small town in England. Uh, so it's, it's worth watching as, as a curiosity. It's nothing particularly mind-blowing, but uh, it is just a little charming exploration of an actor's hometown 
Well, I guess we'll wrap things up. Uh, so a summary on Odd Man Out. Is this something uh, worthy of the Criterion Collection? You know, I was going back and forth on that question. As a, On its own, definitely not. But the question, so the, the idea of the Criterion Collection, it's a series of important films. And I think this is important in terms of being a pivot point in Carol Reed's career. And if one wants to understand this worthwhile director, I mean, Carol Reed's an important director in cinema because of the other work he does. This is an important thing to watch in terms of understanding his work and his progression as a filmmaker. So I would kind of lean towards saying, yes, it does belong there as looking at the start of a career, of a, of a change in his career and a direction in his career that would mature with later films. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. I, we seem to agree a lot on this show, but that's all right. <laughs> Great minds think alike. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed the film. I mean, it's there's definitely a lot to like here, and there's really strong visuals, and it's very well directed. But I think the screenplay has weaknesses for sure. Some of the performances are are too theatrical, uh, but. Uh, you know, it's definitely an important film for Carol Reed. It's an important film, I think, for British cinema uh, in this post-war period. It really is kind of a harbinger of, of other things to come for, for Carol Reed. So definitely worth seeing. Um, but is it something that I would, on its own, uh, including the Criterion Collection? Yeah, I would agree with you. Probably not. Uh, I do hear some people really praising this film and just... Uh, saying it's it's their favorite Carol Reed film, and, and I'm just not not quite seeing it. I mean, I, I I'm praising it. I think it's definitely a, a solid picture, but not on the level of some of his later work. I would agree. I mean, it's interesting because I think Roman Polanski said it's his favorite movie. Yeah, I read that too. It's and, uh, interesting. You know, so it's it, it's interesting that it did obviously resonate and influence certain other filmmakers, which is maybe another reason to put it in the Criterion Collection. Because I think you can see that some of the things they do here do start to influence other films that come along later, not in any significant, mind-blowing way like, say, a Citizen Kane. But they do; ha- it does have a certain footprint uh, on cinema. So for that reason, it might also merit having, having inclusion in the Criterion Collection. Well, thanks for listening this evening. Our, um, our next episode will be Carol Reed's The Third Man, which will be released the first Friday in June. Thanks again, and have a good night.